Hi, I'm Yasser El-Gindi, Head of Macro Energy, and I'm joined today by Dan Schwartz, Head of Cross-Asset Macro Research at Medley Advisors. We want to talk about inflation and how we should be thinking about it in 2022. Uh, there's no doubt that um, oil's impressive rally in 2021 was driven in large part by surging growth, but also by surging inflation expectations, which have been exceeded. Now, as we look to 2022, the Fed has pivoted and is now brandishing its inflation-fighting credentials. And so we need to start thinking about uh, inflation in the year ahead. Um, so what exactly um, should we be thinking about? I mean, it's, it's been some time, Dan, since inflation has been so politicized. Um, and, and it really is the big political football in Washington, D.C. these days. Um, what is driving inflation, I guess, depends on who you ask. Uh, Republicans want to blame Democrats. Democrats want to blame OPEC. And, you know, many economists just believe this is supply chains gone run amok. So what is causing the spike in inflation? Is it energy prices? Is it government spending? Is it supply chains? Is it something else? So the, the answer to this really uh, all leads back to the pandemic the policy response to it and the recovery since the reopening of the global economy began earlier this year. And that's the common factor kind of that cuts through all of these different things. Uh, the pandemic and the lockdown period had a lot of both predictable and unpredictable uh, uh, influences on both supply and demand uh, that are kind of manifesting themselves in prices today. The supply chain issues undoubtedly had a big impact in pushing up prices last summer, but the resurgence this year was a bit of a surprise. Uh, the fact that the pandemic kept foreign ports, uh, foreign factories, and to a lesser degree, domestic ports operating at much lower than the pre-pandemic capacity was a bit of a surprise. And uh, we've seen the price of imported goods, particularly durable goods, um, rise pretty consistently uh, as domestic inventories have been drawn down across a whole host of industries. Um, that's one of the major factors. A second major factor was there was a huge amount of fiscal support that began almost immediately after the lockdowns were ordered last year uh, to make up for the fact that you know, the economy was looking off a cliff and we didn't know how deep that cliff was going to be. So you know, in many ways, I think the government, broad government response was appropriate insofar as they wanted to avoid the worst outcomes if the lockdowns were protracted and the pandemic was going to prove long lived. So they threw huge amounts of money at the economy, both to businesses and the, the consumer sector, um, which meant that as the lockdown period proved to be on the shorter end of what it could have been, um, households were cashed up, demand barely uh, suffered a blip, and because employment recovered so fast, um, you now had too many dollars chasing too few goods. Um, and still many services were unavailable until early this spring, which brings us to the last kind of major piece of this, which is the reopening itself. Uh, as the economy reopened in March and April, you had a huge wave of pent up demand for discretionary services, mostly travel related services. Um, and prices predictably spiked there, particularly given that a lot of those industries had, had cut back capacity pretty dramatically during the pandemic. Think airlines uh, reducing flight schedules, hotels that had shut down to shutter temporarily or permanently. So there was just less supply available to meet this surge demand. 
Uh, and that's kind of where we stand today. But some of these issues are, or at least on the surface, would seem to be resolving, right? Supply chains seem to be a little bit better than where we were, say, six to nine months ago. Unemployment continues to, to, to go down. I'm just curious, why, why have these things um, all of a sudden become front and center for the Fed? Why, why is the Fed changing its policy stance now, um, given that we've had many of these issues with us for so long, and, and some of them do appear to be uh, unwinding? So um, from the perspective of the Fed, you know, they, they get a lot of uh, heat for this whole transitory label that they're now in the process of retiring. Um, you know, the reality was the things that they expected to happen in the areas that were predictable, like the surge in demand for discretionary travel services, you saw, the, you saw a predictable price response. And in that regard, I would argue they were correct about that piece of the transitory label. The problem is there was a whole host of things they weren't expecting and weren't predicting that have happened since. You know, number one, and first and foremost, is the fact that there seemed to have been some this interesting uh, uh, um, clash between uh, uh, long-term demographic trends, you know, some sick, the more rapid than expected cyclical rebound in demand for labor and potentially kind of a structural shift in, in the psychology of a big piece of the labor market so that uh, the labor response, the labor supply response, despite the very rapid gains in payroll growth we've seen over the past year is still less than the demand for labor has been. And the where that's come out is in, in rising wages. Uh, in the very initial stages of the reopening, I think the Fed expected to see some acceleration in wages. The issue has been that that acceleration has become much more persistent and broad-based. Um, and so that is now starting to raise fears among the Fed that uh, there might be more long-lived uh, structural shortfalls in the labor market supply demand balance than they've expected earlier this year. You know, in fact, that was what the big debate between the labor hawks and the labor doves at the Fed was about earlier this year. And the evidence thus far has come in pretty solidly in the camp of the hawks. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why the Fed is switching gears. Um, you know, after the initial, the, the transitory wave of inflation, which was still much sharper and spikier than I think anyone expected this spring, you actually did see some deceleration with a couple of softer monthly inflation prints in the summer months. I think the thing that's really surprised the Fed is since the fall, the, uh, we've seen consumer price increases bleed into core service sectors that weren't directly affected by the pandemic. Um, and these are areas like uh, um, personal care services, think, you know, hairdressers and dog grooming, things like that, that, you know, the, the supply chain issues uh, and the shortfall in the demand last year can't really explain. And the reason is because rising wages have increasingly bled into um, the cost of goods and services for consumers. Um, and let me add one secondary, secondary thing, keeping inflation on the boil has been uh, the successive waves driven by variants of the pandemic. Um, you know, I think when the supply chain issues kind of cropped up at the, in last summer, and then again earlier this fall, there was an expectation that they'd be winding down towards the end of the year. But the severity of the Delta wave overseas caused a lot deeper and broader shutdowns in activity 
in key places, the manufacturing supply chain, thinking the place of countries like Malaysia and Vietnam, where you had factory closures and port closures. And that's caused the supply chain driven uh, upward pressure on goods prices to be more sustained than the Fed uh, had initially expected. And that's even before factoring in the potential impact of Omicron, which we don't know yet, but which threatens to make this an issue that doesn't just fade away in the next six months, but maybe even persist through all of 2022. Yeah, and I think the, the, the fear now, at least from, from the oil market perspective, um, is, you know, if, if inflation is a really big problem for the Fed, and it clearly it already is, we know that they, 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 uh, they uh, undershot the, the inflation expectations, and, but if it becomes a big problem for the Fed, is it going to have to sacrifice growth in order to fight inflation? Um, I think that's really the question um, at, at the forefront of, of, of our minds. And it seems like a big leap. Um, obviously, for, 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 for the oil market, what matters is growth. And um, it feels like there's still a lot of tailwinds. I know we've seen some downgrades uh, over the past quarter. But just what do you think is priced in uh, when it comes to inflation? And, and, and where do you think markets think inflation is headed? next year. Okay, so let's uh, break this into two pieces. There's the growth and inflation trade-off, and then there's where are market expectations and you know, how is that likely to evolve? Uh, on the growth uh, and uh, inflation trade-off, look, at the broadest level, yes. Uh, if the Fed is forced to re, uh, reduce the amount of stimulus it's adding to the economy or indeed move to a restrict, restrictive policy stance, that will over time uh, take, take some of the top off of growth. Doesn't necessarily cause a recession, although that obviously over time becomes a possibility as well. But it is not necessarily going to be the outcome, particularly in the short term. What the Fed is doing first and foremost is seeking to address uh, what they fear is starting to be a sustained rise in inflation expectations. Uh, the story of the last decade has really been inflation outcomes and expectations uh, uh, moving relentlessly down in the wake of the 2008-2009 recession, combined with some big structural forces uh, permeating the US and the global economy. A lot of the Fed's early actions and you know, its rhetoric were conditioned on the, that dynamic being sustained in the post-pandemic world. It is, there are still some who think that, that those structural forces will reemerge over time, but increasingly there are those who are worried that maybe we're starting to enter a new regime. Where they all agree, however, is that after a period in which inflation expectations appear to be becoming destabilized to the downside, they've moved up very rapidly back to levels that they think are consistent with their inflation target over the medium term. The problem, and the, what they're starting to acknowledge more explicitly, is the pace at which they're moving up is both unsustainable and frankly, quite scary to them. They don't have a lot of margin for error left if we get another one or two quarters of increases like we've seen since the start of this year. So again, the level today as it stands is probably not problematic, but the trajectory is one that has them concerned. So their shift is largely intended above all else to break the back of inflation expectations moving up higher and stabilize them here. It's possible that by shifting you know, their rhetoric and moving to more aggressively to take away stimulus from the economy, that they're able to stabilize inflation expectations without moving to a restrictive stance 
that would ultimately cause growth to have to, to be downgraded in 2023 or beyond. So that's the growth inflation nexus. You know, then what, what's priced in for markets and how are markets thinking about this? So you've seen a lot of discussion in markets recently, uh, particularly company in the most recent CPI release of peak inflation. Broadly speaking, that is, view is probably correct, but what it means in the short term and the medium term are two different things. The CPI is an index uh, statistic, meaning that regarding uh, what's priced in uh, for inflation in the next year, uh, there's been a lot of discussion in markets, particularly company in the most recent release of CPI that were at peak inflation. Uh, what that means really is that the CPI is an index uh, number. So that each, uh, when you look at the year on year change, it effectively encapsulates all 12 of the preceding monthly increases. The big spike in inflation that began last spring will come out, fall out of those numbers starting in the second quarter of 2022. So unless we see further acceleration in sequential prints, meaning that month on month changes get back to close to the 1%-ish readings that we saw in the second quarter of last year, the 6% year-on-year readings and headline will start to come off in the months ahead. However, I, we sh I should caution that over the next several months, we are likely to see year-on-year -year readings on the order of 6% because of those accumulated base effects. Um, that's so, it's not inconsistent with, uh, 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 ongoing high readings is not inconsistent with the notion of peak inflation. The problem for the market and for the Fed is that you know, we obviously don't know what the sequential gains, I mean the month on month gains will look like as we move forward into the winter and then again into next spring. And after a year in which we've seen inflation possibly double, rise at double the pace of the Fed's inflation target, uh, their margin for tolerating above target, few further above target outcomes is very limited. And uh, if we continue to see inflation come in and the point core inflation readings come in and the 0.4, 0.5% month on month increases that we saw in the past several months, that would constitute a, an intolerable overshoot for 2022 or beyond for the Fed. Um, I would argue that the market is expecting high, but not overly high readings over the year ahead. Um, so there's probably still margin to surprise negatively, meaning that inflation comes in too high. Um, my guess is we're not going to see the spike readings that we saw last April, May, when used car prices in particular you know, rose at a phenomenally uh, aggressive rate, uh, that's, there's probably a limit to how far things like that can move the needle uh, and continue to rise. But all else equal, I would argue the setup in the wage and uh, on, on the labor market is one that pushes the range of outcomes probably towards the right side of the distribution for the next year. So that really then becomes sort of the nightmare scenario for, for the, the, the Fed is basically reaching for the panic button. If prices stay high, if labor markets stay tight, wages go up, and the cost of things that basically have nothing to do with the pandemic continue to move higher. Does that affect, do you think that's a fair assessment of, of, of what they would most fear for next year? I think that's right, but I think I might, I might uh, take issue with the notion that they're reaching for the panic button. Look, they made a call, they made a judgment in the spring, they waited for evidence to roll in. Arguably, they were waiting for too much evidence to roll in, but um, 
they, you know, the facts have changed and they've changed their tune. So I would argue they're acting in a rational, orthodox and responsible manner. Um, they probably don't know how high or how much, how restricted that policy will need to move, become over the next year and a half. So there's no reason for them to signal that the sky is falling, which thus far they haven't done. Um, but I would agree with the notion that the current mix of factors affecting prices probably represents a realistic worst case for the Fed. And I think there's a decent chance that that, that outcome continues for quite a while. You know, number one, as you mentioned, uh, Omicron presents new risks to the supply chain. You know, the, the window over which supply chain issues were expected to resolve seems to be an ever uh, a, a constantly moving six month window. Initially, it was expected to be in the middle of this year. Then the Delta wave pushed that into early March to June of next year. I think the real risk is that these supply chain issues now end up getting pushed into 2023 before you can reasonably expect resolution if Omicron has a similar impact on less vaccinated uh, manufacturing oriented economies overseas uh, that the Delta wave did. We obviously don't know how that's gonna turn out, but I would say as a base case, that's probably a reasonable expectation going in. Uh, number two, the, uh, you know, the commodity pressures, you know, as, as you point out, there's a supply demand driven kind of base for them. And while you know, oil will move in, 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 in tandem with kind of broader risk appetite and financial conditions at times, uh, the supply demand balances remain tight for many commodities and the supply side is flexible, but not in the very short term. So unless there's a real pothole in demand globally uh, next year, um, it's hard to make the case that you're going to see a rapid decline such that the last year's increase in commodity prices is then followed by deflation in commodity prices. You know, I think the realistic best case there is that they flatten out and they don't push prices higher. But the, the upside risk is that you move another 20, 30, 40% in some of these commodities. Um, and then uh, third and probably most important, is this labor supply issue that we've been talking about. Um, you know, I, I mean, I've already alluded to a couple of examples there, but it's very hard to see how this resolves in the very near term in a way that is satisfactory to the Fed. Um, there, there are a lot of things going on in the economy that are gonna be hard to judge in real time, but we are sitting here today with an unemployment rate at 4.2%. Um, the amount of, labor that's available on the sidelines is significantly smaller than the gap that remains in the pay, in payrolls relative to pre-pandemic levels. We're still some five to six million below the pre-pandemic trend in payrolls. And at best, I think there's two million people on the sidelines that you can easily count. Uh, meaning these are people who are either currently unemployed, uh, you know, kind of above the natural rate of unemployment or people who are not in the labor force, but would like to work. Um, and inducing those people back into the labor market is going to be difficult. You know, we we were in a situation in which we're seeing wage gains across industries, including in many industries that are, have both higher wages and salaries. So you can't say that simply chalk up the inability to hire to, to the now expired pandemic era handouts. Um, and also industries in which there's a lot more labor mobility, I meaning you can work remotely. So saying that vaccine or mandate hesitancy or pandemic hesitancy is driving it, you know, doesn't pass the smell test in some of those industries as well. I think that reduced labor mobility overall and particularly reduced immigration is probably uh, um, one of the factors 
that is absent today that you might have used as a kind of a, a, a safety valve in recent cycles. Okay, that's very interesting. It's a lot to digest. And obviously some of this stuff can be very slow moving, meaning they can take some time for, 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 for these trends to, to evolve. I was wondering, can, can you give us a couple of data points that traders who maybe are not as focused on, on, on these things can look to to get a sense of how this is playing out in real time um, without necessarily having to wait for the monthly data to be rolling out? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that you can use as both forward-looking indicators of both where CPI itself is headed and how the Fed is likely to react to changing uh, uh, um, you know, dynamics. Uh, first and foremost, I want to say though, focus on the month-on-month -month changes in CPI and particularly core CPI. Again, there's so the year-on-year figures that are commonly cited have a lot of kind of past history written into them. And where inflation is going over the next three to six, 12 months is going to be largely the story of what happens in the month-on-month -month changes in the three-month annualized, six-month annualized changes. And that's going to be the thing that I think the market is most sensitive to, and particularly the Fed is most sensitive to. Regarding data points to look at in, you know, while we're waiting for the official data to roll in and for the Fed to react, I would say, number one, uh, you want to focus on inflation expectations. Uh, inflation, there's no single statistic out there that is, that captures all the totality of inflation expectations. Um, and it's an issue that is hotly debated among economists. So two that I would cite are number one, there's surveyed inflation expectations. Probably the most well-known is the University of Michigan's Consumer Confidence Survey that's released early every month and then updated a couple weeks later. Uh, within that, and you can see this on Bloomberg, you can see it on the University of Michigan website, you can see it in many places. Um, there's a, they poll uh, respondents for inflation expectations for five to 10 years down the road. That number currently sits at 3%, which is the high end of, which is about the highest level we've been at in about a decade. Uh, it's moved up off, as I mentioned earlier, uh, a period where it had just ground relentlessly lower uh, to, to the concern of policymakers at the time. Now that we're at 3%, the level overall is not a problem for the Fed, but should it continue to move higher from here, that is something that I think both markets and the Fed would take note of. So that's one. And a second inflationary ind inflation expectations indicator I would look at is market-derived measures of inflation break-evens. Without getting to the mechanics, for those who are not familiar, there is a price you can back out of, of treasury yields uh, that tells you what the market's expectations for inflation are over different periods of time. Probably the easiest to look at is the 10-year uh, inflation break-even that's derived from 10-year U.S. treasuries. Uh, you can see this on Bloomberg. Um, it, the ticker is USGGBE10. It ticks intraday, so that's an easy one to watch in real time. Separate from expectations, I'd say watch wages. Uh, you know, everyone pays a lot of attention to the payrolls figures uh, and the unemployment rate in the, when the monthly employment data drop at the start of every month. There's also a wages number in there, the average hourly earnings number. Um, I would look at the month-on-month -month change there. Uh, average hourly earnings over the past decade have averaged somewhere between two and 3% most years. Uh, and that has moved up spectacularly over the last year and a half. So I would say readings there above 0.3.4 would be something that would keep the Fed very concerned about a wage price spiral developing. And then the final thing I would say to look at is kind of more real-time indicators of inflation breadth, 
how widely price, in, uh, price uh, increases are being felt. One thing I like to look at a lot for that that comes out early every month and that kind of is a period that postdates, the window postdates the most recent CPI is the Philadelphia Fed's manufacturing uh, uh, um, survey. And in it, there's a, they ask respondents about the prices received and their expected prices received. And it's a net figure. They ask, have prices gone up or prices gone down? And they take the total number of those responding prices which have gone up and they subtract from that those saying the prices have gone down. So you can see as that number moves higher, how broadly inflation expectations are being felt. I don't know exactly when the peak is going to come uh, in terms of this inflation surge, but I would expect to see that rolling over uh, in advance of the peaking out of sequential pressures in CPI. Wonderful. Thank you, Dan. I know we went through a lot of uh, data sets very quickly there. If anyone listening is interested in looking at some of these uh, in more detail, please do reach out and uh, Dan or I will be, will be happy to walk you through that. With that, that'll conclude our podcast. Thank you very much for joining.